Genetics Podcast Episode 22. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Caroline Luger from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Caroline, for joining me today. Um, you were born in Austria and studied microbiology and biochemistry in Innsbruck. You earned your PhD in biochemistry and biophysics from the University of Basel. You then did a postdoc with Timothy Richmond at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich and were hired then by Colorado State University in 1999. In 2005, you were selected as an investigator for the Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And in 2007, you were named one of the 13 university distinguished professors. Finally, in 2015, you and your whole lab moved to the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where you accepted the position, and now it gets uh, hard, of a Jenny Smoley Caruthers <laughs> Endowed Chair of Chemistry and Biochemistry. And there you are still today. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? And then later on in pursuing a career in science, or was this the plan the whole way? It actually was the plan all along. I grew up with um, two older brothers. They were both very interested in physics and electronics, and that's actually their jobs today. And my dad was an engineer. So all the discussions at the dinner table revolved around that stuff. And, and I, I just felt like I really wanted to understand how things worked. And I was really interested in biology in particular, in plants. I loved gardening. I grew trees from seeds. I, I, I just... I, I was just fascinated by how that works. And so um, I didn't really know what to, um, where to take that passion. And molecular biology at that time was kind of in its infancy. And there weren't any role models for women in academic positions at that time because I'm quite old. And uh, so, so, you know, the best role model was, oh, you can be a high school teacher in biology. And that really did not sound very appealing to me, even though I tremendously respect teachers um, all over the world. But that wasn't really for me. But um, I ended up in Innsbruck in the Department of um, Microbiology because microbiology at that time came the closest to the kind of molecular molecular detail that I was interested in without even knowing that I was interested in this. And there uh, we learned a lot about uh, fungi. We learned a lot about botany, zoology, the usual thing. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to be accepted into the uh, biochemistry department as an undergrad researcher. And the main reason um, that worked out for me is because my student home in Innsbruck was right next to the biochemistry department. And so I just went over there. Uh, and sat in the back of their seminar rooms. Um, and I was just really fascinated by, by the seminars that these speakers gave. And I didn't understand anything, but I thought one of these days, I really want to learn um, what this is all about. And so they noticed me sitting there and they offered me uh, a job as an undergrad. And then um, I got hooked from there on because they had me do mini preps. And I, I, I remember to this day seeing this little Eppendorf tube with DNA in it that I had prepared. Uh, and, and um, you know, the rest is history. And, and actually as a, 
even now, uh, I have a lot of undergrad students in my lab, and it's not a very efficient way of doing science because they're very, they require a lot of mentoring and a lot of training, but I just want to pass along that joy that, uh, that I received from being adopted into this biochemistry lab. I want to pass that forward so that other students can also be infected with that kind of passion. So proactiveness was a very big part of where you ended up now. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, it's a combination. I mean, it, it's always a little bit of a random walk. Uh, it never, it's, it's never as targeted as people make it sound in CVs. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but after my, after doing my undergrad, um, I actually did an internship at, um, at what was then Sondo. Um, I worked in, in um, drug screening and I think I worked on cyclosporin or something. It was just around the time when cyclosporin was detected. And I don't think I did anything terribly useful, but um, it kind of made me realize that I really didn't want to be in, in industry because it was just I didn't like the way uh, projects were selected. I, I, I noticed that I really much rather delve into mechanism. And so I ended up... Um, in the Kirchner lab in Basel. And again, that was kind of a random walk. I just kind of wandered in at the BioLender, seemed like a really good place in Basel to do research. And at that time I had met my future husband who lived in Basel. And so this seemed like an obvious choice. And, um, and during my PhD, um, it was a very, very much um, in protein engineering and a very creative project uh, where we did some pretty, cool things to proteins just to figure out whether they could take it and and that really made me realize that I'm I was much more interested in structure and mechanism than in for example immunology yeah. or or drug drug medic, medically targeted research so one last uh, private question you're an Austri you're Austrian uh, and you studied very close to where I'm living now so so I know kind yeah. of where, where that is so how did you did you end up in in Colorado and then what made you stay there Well if if you look at my CV I did my undergrad in Innsbruck I I grew up in, in Vorarlberg I did my uh, PhD in Basel and then postdoc in Zurich and now I'm in Colorado so there's a common denominator to all of this and that's mountains and lots of free space so um, when I was a postdoc in Richmond's lab, um, Tom Cech, uh, my current colleague uh, at CU Boulder, gave a talk there. And, and it was a fabulous talk. But the best part for me was the slide, his acknowledgement slide, because it was a view from his window, his office window, on the flat irons, which is kind of our mountain range uh, that, that is the Voralpen for the Rocky Mountains. And... Uh, I remember at that time, it was like 1995 or so, I said, like, I got to go there. So, so <laughs> that's how I ended up in Colorado. And I have never looked back. Yeah, it worked out pretty nice. So uh, pretty com well. <laughs> coming to your science, the paper from your postdoc times called The Crystal Structure of the Nucleosome Core Particulate 2.8 Angstrom Resolution was published now more than 20 years ago and i think it's fair to say that it has become a classic <laughs> since 97 and i looked this up just minutes ago it has been cited about 9,000 times i hope this number is correct That's uh, about, sounds about right <laughs> <laughs> could you it take it read much less times i can assure you that <laughs> it has been read <laughs> uh, could you take us on the journey that led to this to this discovery and finally to this paper sure i yeah so uh, after my 
after my PhD, which worked out really well, I, I, we decided we needed a year off. And so um, we decided to travel for a year, took basically a gap year. But um, I had I wanted to have a position lined up. And so I was really um, at that time, I didn't know any crystallography, but I was really um, intrigued by how you get from the diffraction patterns to the structures. And so Tim Richmond at that time had just started his lab in Zurich. And to be honest, uh, I was not interested at all in nucleosomes or chromatin. I actually thought they were boring uh, because they didn't do anything. I came more from an enzymology background, so I was more interested in proteins that actually did something. <laughs> but he said, you know, you can like, solve the structure of this nucleosome, and then once you're done, you can do some other things. So I thought, yeah, sure, let's do that. And so... <laughs> So I I did not realize, and it was not told that uh, this particular project was one of the uh, biggest challenges in structural biology at that time. So in a way, that was good because uh, once I realized that, which was like three years in or so with no progress at all, I was I, w- I wouldn't let go. I, I I was I was determined to get this done, and um, Tim Richmond. He gave me the resources and the time uh, and the backup to to get it done. And there were a couple of us working on this particular uh, problem and teamwork. Um, there were a lot of problems that we had to um, that we had to overcome. We had to make the histones in bacteria, which is sounds trivial now, but it really wasn't that trivial then. We then had to. Uh, find a DNA that was a good positioning DNA that was before the 601 Widom sequence. So um, a lot of work done by one of my colleagues went into screening for a good fragment of DNA. We then had to prove, we had to build these nucleosomes from scratch again. This is super trivial now because because of the protocol that I developed uh, over the course of a year. And now, you know, undergrads can do it and, and, and people sell nucleosomes, uh, like you guys, I think. Um, and, but we had to prove that these nucleosomes were really identical with the ones that we identified from uh, tissues. And so that took a fair bit of time. Um, it turned out that uh, the crystallization uh, actually worked was worse, was made worse by all of these things I did, that I did in order to obtain better crystals. And so then we had to figure out why that was. And, and it turned out there was some um, some thermodynamic rearrangement that the nucleosomes had to undergo uh, that, that I had to figure out. And then finally, um, we had diffracting crystals at that time. Um, synchrotron radiation uh, kind of came into its own for protein crystallography. So they were the first third-generation synchrotrons that were kind of designed to get hard X-rays for protein crystallography. So we obtained time there um, in in Grenoble at the ESRF, which was at that time still being constructed. It was really fabulous because we were among the first users. And um, it's like this huge concrete ring with a very smooth concrete floor and so we went there many times and so as soon as we realized that there was this big area we brought our rollerblades <laughs> and we actually literally uh, spent our night shifts rollerblading uh, and babysitting the uh, the data collection which took forever at that time until they caught us and so then they actually slapped our fingers and told us to go away uh, but uh that was also really important in order to uh, 
get this structure. And then finally, um, this, this infamous phase problem uh, for structure determination also had to be solved. And that entailed making a lot of mutants in the histones blind because we didn't know how they looked like uh, to, in order to, to attach heavy atoms to these uh, side chains, to these amino acid side chains, so that we could determine this phase problem through multiple isomorphous replacement, which is also a method that nowadays, because we have so many structures in the PDB, hardly anybody has to do anymore because you can just take a similar structure and solve the phases that way. But at that time, that really was not an option. So then, um, that actually then gave rise to uh, what we call electron density maps. Uh, it's basically the envelope of, of the atoms uh, in, in a structure, and that had to be interpreted. So those beautiful structures that you see on, on, on the PDB or on mouse pads, uh, those really have to be built by a person. And nowadays that can be automated, but in, in our case, those programs weren't there yet. And also our resolution wasn't really quite good enough for this. So I literally manually had to build in every amino acid um, of the structure. And that took about a year or so of, uh, I would say like 12 hours per day, uh, I would say six to seven days a week. It's a lot of work sitting in a really lonely, dark room. Uh, trying to build this thing. Uh, and so it kind of emerges before your eyes, which is super cool. Uh, but it's not like it's not like now you don't see it and now you see it all of a sudden. It just kind of grows before your eyes. And so to me, it wasn't like a real realization of like, oh my God, this is how it looks like. It was more like a tedious process. Um, and um, it was actually nice because once we solved the structure, it really explained a lot of the data in the literature um, and a lot of what people thought they knew and a lot of seemingly contradicting uh, factors. There were a lot of surprises there. Writing the paper was uh, was quite fun. I wasn't that involved in it because uh, Tim Richman took ownership of that. <laughs> but we did get approached by Nature and they basically asked us, can we please publish your paper, which is really nice. And yeah. that's never happened to me again. Um, but I, I will say that the coolest moment uh, of, of this whole enterprise, which was really uh, quite exhausting and really not as glamorous as it sounds and tedious, but I went to a Cold Spring Harbor meeting, symposium meeting and transcription, and I was, I was given a short talk uh, to present the structure, which nobody had seen to that day, and I put it up on, on the slide projector by that <laughs> time. It was still a slide projector. And the whole room went like, ah, oh. so that was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah my view of, of crystallography is always that you, I mean, in, in usual PhD projects, you have like intermediate results or something. But but in this case, I mean, either you get the structure, you don't get it. I mean, you, you maybe have the, the little uh, protocols that you had to improve along the way. But uh, but I think it's it's really frustrating to not. It is any. super frustrating. It's true. And it's not very intellectually challenging because you just try a whole bunch of things and then until something sticks. And so uh, it's not really, you can't really approach it very intellectually or logically. You just have to try a lot of things that make sense. You have to try a lot of things that don't make any sense, but you really have to stay at it and kind of, um, what I think is most important for crystallography, and, and I think it's actually super important for any experimental scientist, is you learn from your mistakes. Because like you, you, 
set up crystals. You don't get crystals. It's very easy to say like, oh, let's just throw it away and let's just start over again. But from not getting any crystals is also information. And so I think, uh, and that's actually a message uh, that I'm really driving home to my students and postdocs as well. Is like, look at your data. The data is trying to tell you something. Even if it, you think it's garbage, it's still talking to you. There's a reason why this is garbage. And so you, if you listen, you can actually learn quite a lot from that. Yeah, I think that's under the journal of, uh, uh, what was it called? The negative results or something? Yes. Like that. <laughs> I, well, I think, you know, you don't even have to publish it, but I think that would be useful to a certain Just, extent, even yeah. though we can't keep track of the reproducible results. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? But But I think just going through your own lab journal occasionally and look at your failures with a fresh eye of what you know now can actually really tell you a lot about your system. And that's true for any experimental system. After that, you then went on, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, to, to, to start your own lab in Boulder, Colorado. There, one of your areas of interest was to pursue, to unravel the nucleosome structure and dynamics. Um, how did you then um, s set those um, experiments up? Which methods did you use? Um, and yeah. what did you find? Well, At that time, um, the hypothesis was that, uh, so at that time, chromatin had become really cool because of the post-translational modifications and, and everybody was, and, and its involvement in transcriptional regulation. So um, the and histone variants were also kind of a big deal at that time. So the hypothesis um, was that histone variants and PTMs might make the nucleosome look different. And there were a lot of reviews showing like, nucleosomes, cartoons, nucleosomes with like slightly scraggly. And, and, and so we wanted to get at the structure, um, a structural basis for this hypothesis. And we determined a lot of structures of nucleosomes. We had the histone H2AZ variant using crystallography. Uh, we did a lot of PTMs. We did different organisms. We did different, P different DNA sequences. And to all practical purposes in the crystal lattice, they all look the same. And, and that was a little disappointing, but uh, what we discovered is actually that it's not, the a crystal is a little bit, bit weird because it packs molecules very closely and they're almost like locked in. And what we, what we um, hypothesize is that the dynamics of the system might actually be affected by PTMs and histone variants and all that good stuff. And so, uh, By crystallizing your nucleosomes, you're occluding the very, very fact that you're actually trying to observe. So we had to look at other approaches and we used single molecule uh, with collaborators. We used a lot of FRET assays, fluorescence, resonance, energy transfer, stability assays. We've also started increasingly to go into the cell uh, to look at, uh, to look at, for example, histone mutants in, in, in yeast. And we really expanded our, our expertise to address the more dynamic nature of, of the system. And it's now really well established that nucleosomes are not binary. So it's not like a nucleosome is either there or not, but they can exist in these transient states. They can be partially unfolded. They can be losing one H2H to be dimer uh, so that you have a hexasome. And this is really profoundly affected by uh, PTMs and histone variants. So while the folded nucleosomes may look all the same, the propensity by which they open up uh, 
can be uh, quite different between these different variants. And, and that there's a lot of biological uh, uh, significance to this, of course. I mean, when transcription needs to occur, then at some point they need to unfold, be deconstructed, need to be evicted or something else. I mean, that's that's just how it should yeah. work. That's exactly right. And that's really the biggest interest right now in my lab is we're looking at nucleosome assembly and disassembly, and which has recently uh, solved the structure by now cryo-EM because that's now the coolest method on the block for addressing these uh, problems um, of the histone chaperone fact uh, in complex, catching it in the act of working on a nucleosome. And so that's, we're really interested, maybe coming back to my engineer brothers, and father to to at the mechanics of the system. So, how do you how does a polymerase navigate a nucleosome? How does it keep the nucleosome partially disassembled but still together? How is it reassembled in the wake? <clears throat> and those are really important uh, problems, uh, and they're very very hard to address because you kind of have to trick the system to stop in mid pathway so that you can take a snapshot by cryo-EM and then you have to trick it to go one step further and then trap it in that step. So you can assemble a whole movie of how it actually works. And that was would actually be my next question, right? So uh, that another area of you was the histone chaperones because that's yes. that's an obvious choice. <laughs> like if you look at the nucleosomes, then you uh, look at that uh, Uh, things that assemble those nucleosomes and you were referencing your the nature paper that came out in general this year i guess uh, um, can you share some mechanistical details of of this uh, paper of this fact complex yeah so um this this complex like if you look at any cartoon in terms of uh anything that needs to work on dna on eukaryotic dna if you look at cartoons of the factors involved fact is always there and it's named for facilitates um facilitates active chromatin transcription i think but uh we've actually renamed it and kept <laughs> the acronym we 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 call it, now, it facilitates all chromatin transactions because that's what it really seems seems to do. And so um, it was a very confusing time for fact. Everybody knew it was hugely important, but it interacted with so many different things in so many different ways um, that it was very confusing to figure out what it does. Also, a lot of the studies had been done with different domains. So fact is a heterodimer and each monomer in that dimer has multiple domains that do different things and so a lot of people just chopped off domains and then said oh this domain binds histone so that's the histone binding domain and um, it turns out that's a little bit like the blind man feeling the elephant i don't know whether you're familiar with this cartoon like you know somebody somebody feels a tail and say oh it's a rope and another and oh, okay. somebody feels a trunk and say oh it's like a garden hose and, and <laughs> You know what I mean? So, yeah. so in order to understand fact, you have to look at the whole thing. And um, we've actually discovered that quite surprisingly, fact kind of sits on top of a partially assembled nucleosome and it tethers together uh, the various histone subunits that have been liberated off their DNA. So the polymerase comes in and it frees up the DNA that would normally be bound to the histone H2H2B dimer. And in order to keep that H2H2B dimer there, FACT kind of hugs it with a C-terminal domain and kind of pretends to be DNA uh, because it's very acidic. Uh, so it kind of hugs it and it sits on top and just kind of clamps the whole thing together while the DNA is unpeeled in a stepwise fashion. 
And then we believe um, in a backward, uh, in, in a reversal of this process, nucleosomes are reassembled in the wake. I really like that paper because um, I've never actually seen this happen before, but uh, it really managed, the structure really managed to reconcile all the confusing and seemingly contradictory results in the literature. Uh, so, so, so there were a lot of seemingly competing assumptions on what fact does, and our structure really reconciled all of those. So that was really gratifying. So, so if you look at the yeah the, the function of fact, it's not like a pioneering transcription factor, but it's more like a yeah like to keep the genome intact after transcription took place. So, so the way we see it now, and that's really consistent with uh, some observations uh, from. Katya Gurova's lab, uh, who works on cancer, uh, is that a uh, fact is like the nucleosome uh, police or rescue squad. So it really doesn't want to bind to intact nucleosomes. It just leaves those alone, but it cruises around. And as soon as it sees something that's partially dismembered, it just sits on it and hugs it and says, it's okay, <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't fall apart and helps this is, helps reassembling it. And so... Um, It's it's always been a little puzzling why why fact is so abundant in cancer cells, and uh, because um, there's like a huge overexpression effect in most cancer cells, and that's probably why because cancer cells have chromatin that might be a little bit more discombobulated and a little more dis disturbed, and so we need more fact to kind of keep things in place. Maybe because there's also more transcription going on. That is one hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different hypotheses why that is, but that's one of them. Um, but it's like fact is super abundant in, in um, undifferentiated cells, and it becomes actually quite scarce in differentiated cells. Oh. So that would also explain that. So as soon as you work a lot on DNA, you need a lot of fact to keep things kind of together. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one uh, would be, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you reached a dead end, maybe during the postdoc time, and you really did not know how to proceed or you wanted to throw everything away uh, to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Or Yeah, no, absolutely. I think every everybody who you ask, if, they, if they've never experienced that, they're maybe lying or they may be kind of forgetful. So, um, you know, like in my postdoc time, I'm not going to lie to you, that was very hard. Um, and uh, what made it, and, and because I literally worked for, I wouldn't say five or six years without getting anywhere. So what made it bearable is the team of people I worked with. And, and you know, Tim Richmond really um, expressed a lot of confidence that we could get this. And this was a really important problem. And my colleagues were just terrific there. And so we kind of had each other's back. So that helped, but for sure, like um, it, you, you wonder what you're going to do if this whole thing doesn't pan out and then you're just left with nothing. And that wasn't really, um, I think by the time I realized that it was a little too late to, to throw in the towel because You know, I could keep working and maybe pull this off or I might not working and then I wouldn't have a job. You know what yeah, I mean? No, that's so, always the, the yeah, right, off. Right. So, so it wasn't that heroic to keep doing this. Um, but it really I hadn't really occurred to me seriously to throw in a towel and do something completely different. Um, and then, um, um, like most people mid-career, um, 
you experience a little bit of a slump, things get a little stale, you kind of feel you're doing the same old, same old. And that really was the main reason for my move. Uh, not because I didn't like it at my at, at Colorado State University, because that was just a wonderful place to to start. And it was very encouraging. And I really owe them a lot of gratitude. Uh, but I just felt I needed a little bit of a kick um, and and a little bit of a new, uh, a, a second wind. And so moving to CU Boulder, um, uh, I was really fortunate. So they had some cryo-EM already going on there, um, but I was really fortunate to, to secure the money to obtain the flagship uh, microscope, the Titan Creos for CEO Boulder. And it's a really big deal for our area because if you look at the geographic distribution of these instruments, there's none within like five states or so. So I think the next one's over in Utah. There's nothing in, there's like a big wasteland. And so this is the first Titan Creos in this location. And we're super excited um, to get that started. And many people in my lab have, uh, have moved uh, into this direction. And we've also started to open up a lot of new areas of research. We do a lot of in-cell uh, imaging, single molecule tracking of protein movement in chromatin to check, to test uh, how uh, how they are restricted by chromatin structure. Um, so um, we've really expanded our, our um, repertoire of technologies uh, upon moving. Uh, and, and that's been really hugely um, helpful in overcoming this slump. So in the last 29 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career from your first nature paper to your last nature paper now. <laughs> yeah, can, you, right. can you maybe give a short summary about your yeah your most important findings and what we might have missed in this interview, but it's still very important to you? Well, uh, I actually want to give a shout out uh, to my work as a, as a graduate student. Um, with with Kasper Kirchner at the Biocenter in Basel, uh, because um, that work um, that work <laughs> that work was a little weird, and uh, when I explained it to people, they said like, "Why would you want to do that?" And I said, "Well, because I can." And so what we <laughs> did is, <laughs> and and I actually try to keep a project like this around that's in my lab. Uh, still, just because they're a lot of fun. And so at that time, let me just explain, at that time, it really wasn't clear whether um, the the order in which an amino acid emerges from the ribosome has an effect on its folding. We all know that proteins have all the information that they need to fold up into their structures. But it wasn't really known how this whole worked with co-translational folding and all that good stuff. And so it turned out a lot of proteins have their N and C termini very close together in their physical structures. So we, we thought, ah, let's just circularly permute a gene and see what happens. And so we took a gene or a protein that is an alpha beta barrel had, had the N and C termini very close together. So we made a gene where we stitched together the N and C termini and made new N and C termini someplace else. And people said, oh, well, that's just crazy. Like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> and I said, like, well, I just, want to, I just want to see what happens. And it turned out it was very, very interesting um, and, and actually has inspired a whole cottage industry of people doing this. It has, uh, because it worked, so the protein really didn't care. It worked perfectly well. It has inspired a lot of um, changes in how we do, um, how we do uh, homology searches 
because it turns out that organisms also circularly permute their genes sometimes. And so if you allow that to happen, you find more homologies in genomes. Mm -hmm. It has actually also, you might be interested in this, um, allowed uh, people to get around patents because if you make a gene that is circularly permuted. (laughs) So so we never took advantage of this, but um, it was actually published in in a good journal. And it generated a lot of attention. And um, the reason why I really like that, uh, like that approach of doing science as opposed to the like a hardcore, which hypothesis am I trying to answer? Um, this was more like, oh, let's just poke it and see what happens uh, for no particular reason. Uh, it just is creative and it gives you, um, I think it opens up new hypotheses uh, that you wouldn't really have come up um, in any other way i mean in this in this case it was your 100 percent project project but i mean this also goes in the direction of having your pet project having a 20 percent time project and just doing creative things in in, in your phd or absolutely job. absolutely and i really encourage that actually the way i run my lab is um i give them quite a lot of freedom um and and we're fortunate because we have the funding to to play around a little bit but i will also say that like um you know once once you are done with your postdoc you really your career is really at the mercy of the kind of students that you and postdocs you can attract uh so you know i i wasn't i haven't been in the lab for a long long time and so i basically the way i put it is i parasite off the hard work and the good ideas from from my coworkers, and i've just been super fortunate Uh, to work with such a great team of people throughout the years um, and you know you look back and you look at their where they are now and and what they've learned and you look at my undergrads when I met school or they run companies or whatever and um, and then you know I just wish I could tell my um, my German professor Dr. Manfred Schweiger who adopted me in his lab uh, Way back when I was an undergrad, I wish I could tell him how, what kind of an impact that had on me and my career. Uh, so, um, I, I just I just view this as uh, probably the most important aspect of my job is to train the next generations of scientists and to kind of keep them passionate about science. And so now with this whole virus uh, thing, it's it, it, this is really my main. What I spend most of the, my time with is talking to people and making sure they're okay and making sure they stay engaged and they stay interested in science and they have interesting things to talk about and to think about. Um, so, you know, rather than sitting here in splendid isolation and reading tons of papers and writing reviews, all I really do is talk to people in my lab uh, to make sure they're, they're still uh, doing their thing. And still okay, probably, and not. Yeah, yeah. So, and so for the most part, they're good. Are they working in the lab, or are they working? No, no, no. Nobody's nobody's allowed in the lab okay. for this the fifth week now. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so you know they organize. We have happy hours. We have a lot of project meetings. We have a lot of one-on-one meetings. Uh, they learn coding. They learn EM. So it's they're keeping busy. It's all good. Yeah, listen to podcast, of course. <laughs> they, yeah, <laughs> Hopefully. <maybe. laughs> So uh, thank you very much, Caroline, for sharing yeah, so many personal insights and also um, your science. Um, we are at the end of the interview and thank you very much for your time. Sure, it was a pleasure. Take care. Bye. 
This was the 22nd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog Motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Mm -hmm.